Welcome to Breaking the Case, True Stories by NYPD Detectives, a podcast series written and produced by the New York City Police Department and supported by the New York City Police Foundation. I'm your host, Detective Carrie Riley. In January of 2015, the remains of a woman were found in South Brooklyn. The New York City Medical Examiner ruled her death a homicide. The case is unsolved. The victim remains unidentified. We present this story with the hope that someone recognizes our Jane Doe. This story contains graphic content and may not be suitable for everyone. Please be advised. Here's NYPD producer Jill Bowerly. For years, Chief Patrick Conry kept a large poster in his office at police headquarters a rendering of an African-American woman, about 35 years old, eyes big, staring straight ahead, neither smiling or frowning. Her name may or may not be Monique. When you have a homicide that's this difficult, where you don't even know the identity of the person, it stretches all limits. It was the summer of 2018 when I first knocked on the chief's door to talk to him about the case known as Monique. The word around one police plaza was that he was obsessed with solving this murder. I wouldn't say it's an obsession, but it's pretty damn close. We've had dozens and literally dozens and dozens of leads in this case that we've run to ground. Besides the poster-sized rendering of the victim, his office walls were covered with mementos, photos with colleagues, framed newspaper headlines from famous cases. One shelf featured his old detective shield set in Lucite. I've had a lot of crazy cases in a short period of time when I was in Brooklyn. 35 years on the job, and he still had total recall of all of his cases. Solving mysteries is ingrained in every detective's DNA. The longer a case goes on, the more it gets under their skin. Sometimes their desire to keep working a case means putting off end-of-career plans. Conry knew that his retirement was near, but there was unfinished business. The case had started under his watch, and it was still open. Do I want to give up? Hell no, I don't want to give up. I want to solve this mystery. I want to give uh, people some closure, loved ones of Monique. And if he did retire before Monique's case was solved, that wouldn't be the end of it. At some point, I may retire, and I'll have to stop actively working the case, but I'll never stop thinking about the case until it's solved, and I know the detectives who are investigating this case will never give up investigating it. Back in January 2015, Conry was chief of Brooklyn detectives, meaning he oversaw every detective in the borough. By 2018, he wasn't even in the detective bureau anymore. He was a commanding officer in NYPD's Office of Public Information. But he had special permission from then chief of detectives Dermot Shea to keep working on this case. Dermot Shea is now police commissioner. The detectives are doing all the work here. It's not Chief Connery that's doing the work. But I can bring a little juice to it if we need to do something new or unusual. And they know that pest Chief Connery's gonna call me every two weeks with a new idea. (laughs) The case was stalled, but it wasn't cold. Every detective loves a challenge. And this, this is a mystery that for two detectives, and one chief had become a mission. New York City 911, police, fire, medical. The case goes back to January 4th, 2015. 
It's right around sunset, 5.40 p.m. A 911 call comes in. A bird watcher found a hand on the shore in the back of Calvert Vox Park. That's in Gravesend, in the 6-0 precinct, a quiet neighborhood right next to Coney Island, Sheepshead Bay, and Bensonhurst. Conry races to the crime scene. It's probably high 20 degrees out. We're standing on a little cove in Calvert Vox Park in Brooklyn that doesn't look like you're even in New York City. A group of detectives that look like they're from the 1930s because they're all wearing hats and overcoats. There's a sunken ship right there on its side and a hand sitting on a rock. In the distance, the roller coasters and arcades of Coney Island sit in the frozen silence of the off-season. It's bitter cold. The wind is gusting off the water. Conry and his detectives huddle together so they can hear each other speak. My first thought was, was it left there or did it wash up there? And if it washed up there, you know, where's the rest of the body? Does it look like it separated naturally from the body at the joint? The first thing I do when I get to the scene is find out who the detective is that has the case and get a briefing. Literally, what do you got? The guy he turns to is Detective Mitchell Eisenberg from the 6-0 squad. January 4th, 2015, I was doing a night tour that day, which is four at night to one in the morning. And I believe it was approximately 5 p.m. when we got a call from patrol that they had found what appeared to be a human hand in the rear of the park. It was cold. The first thing that went through my mind is I'm hoping this was like a boating accident. Hopefully this wasn't someone who met some kind of foul play. The hand was discovered by three people towards the rear of the park, off the beaten path. It's not an area that if you were walking through the park, you would see. The back of the park along the shoreline is a popular spot for bird watching. During migrations, this patch of green is a stop for birds heading north or south across the Atlantic. Eisenberg talks to the bird watchers. One of them says he was taking pictures of ducks when he spotted the hand. They're a little shaken up. It's not something that's found every day. Detective Timothy O'Brien from Brooklyn South Homicide is also there. You come up on a crime scene, you try and keep your mind open. You, you don't want to get like tunnel vision or locked in one thing. You, you know, you're making 10 lists in your mind. Other units also respond to the radio call. The crime scene unit rolls up in their van. Officers mark the crime scene with yellow tape. They take pictures, they set up floodlights, and they start a grid search of the area. Trash, some washed up on shore, some left behind by park goers, complicates their search. Meanwhile, the scuba team is diving in the surrounding waters. Cargo ships and barges pass in the distance, sailing in and out of New York Harbor. It's been dark for a couple of hours. It starts to snow. Back at the squad, Eisenberg gets to work. First thing we try to do is get on the computer and see if we have any reports for anyone that um, had any severed limbs, any boating accidents. You know, We didn't know if the hand belonged to a male or a female at that point. Fingerprints from the hand are run through local, state, and federal databases. No match comes up. Eisenberg reaches out to the missing person squad and to nearby police departments to ask if they have any corresponding bodies. Again, no match. Next day, back on the scene, two detectives from the canine unit arrive with a dog. Every NYPD canine is named after a fallen officer. This dog's name is Canine Timoshenko, 
named in honor of Detective Russell Timoshenko, who was killed in the line of duty in 2007. The officers call the canine Timmy. After about 20 minutes, not too far from where the hand was found, Timmy sniffs out a foot. Now I have a hand and a foot, and you're hoping the foot matches the hand. Because if it doesn't, now you have a real big problem. Now you have multiple bodies that are dismembered, either washing up on the shore or being dumped there. The foot does match the hand. It's likely, but not yet confirmed, that the victim is female. The medical examiner also says that the hand and foot show cuts from an unknown tool. City 911, need police, fire, or medical? Two months later, March 22, 2015, 7 p.m., a call comes in. A man, hanging out with friends in the back of Calvert Box Park, discovers a human torso. The remains are located on a hill, about a thousand yards away from the cove where the hand and foot were discovered. Again, canine Timmy is summoned. It's spring. Smells are more abundant in the warmer air than they were in the frigid temperatures of January. Chief Conry recalls the scene at the park that night. We started spiraling out from where that was found, uh, searching for additional body parts. The victim's remains have been exposed to weather, water, and sand. They blend in with the brown grass and fallen leaves of the winter landscape. At the base of a tree, about 40 feet away from where the torso was discovered, Timmy finds the victim's arm and leg bones. Here's Eisenberg. Obviously, this was not an accident. You know, you could probably live without that hand and foot, but the torso, the arms, and the legs were going to be a problem. The next day, a forensic anthropologist from the medical examiner's office arrives at the scene. He takes an inventory of the bones and helps with the search for missing parts. During the search, a detective notices a dark stain on the victim's right calf. This will become the best identifier for the victim to date. It's a tattoo. Today I'm meeting Dr. Bradley Adams at the medical examiner's office so he can show me the victim's skeleton. The bones are laid out meticulously. I look down at the table, and it's hard to imagine that they were once part of a living, breathing person. Adams points out the clean breaks where bones should be. And then you can see, you know, this is where we took a DNA sample here, but like all these other areas of cuts are from... Uh, body dismemberment, the ankles, at the knees, at the hips, at the shoulders. Adams is a forensic anthropologist. Analyzing the human skeleton is his expertise. He used to work for the Army, identifying the remains of missing American soldiers. This is a case that's very frustrating because there's so much potential for identification, you know, from fingerprints, DNA, tattoos, surgery, like everything is there. Here's what the body tells us. That the victim was female, age 25 to 45. She stood between 5 feet 3 and 5 feet 9. Her time of death was estimated to have been the fall or summer of 2014. She'd been dead for four to six months when her body was found. She had a pelvic artery stent, most likely for deep vein thrombosis, and an IUD. At one point in her life, she broke a rib. From the cuts on her bones, Adams can tell that she was killed first 
and later dismembered. On her right calf is a red and green tattoo, a heart with a rose with a banner that says Monique. Other interpretations are Ronique or Konique, but the detectives are going with Monique. It's a more common name. They consulted tattoo artists. And because this is an old-style tattoo, the artist said it's possible that the name in the tattoo is the victim's own name. So then, detectives went back to missing persons databases with the name and tattoo and looked for leads. Here's Chief Connery again. We did find a Monique from Greenpoint, who at one point was uh, reported missing. And when we went to the door, we spoke to the mother and asked her, you know, is, is your daughter Monique missing? And she said, which one? And we said, Monique. And she said, well, all of my daughters are named Monique. I have six daughters named Monique. <laughs> so I guess they were George Foreman fans. <laughs> the fighter George Foreman named his five sons George. That said, none of the woman's six daughters named Monique were missing. Next, Adams tried a new technology called phenotyping. It uses genetic sequences to predict a person's facial features and ancestry. The test indicated that the victim has black hair, black or dark brown skin, dark eyes, and is of mixed African and European descent. A rendering of her face was created based on these predictions and later made into a huge poster. Finally, after two years of working the case, Conry was able to see an image of the person he was looking for. Did it change the way you thought about her as a missing person? Well, absolutely. Now I have, uh, you know, two eyes looking back at me. That's very motivational. Who is Monique? The victim? The victim's daughter? Or someone else? Right now, this question drives the investigation forward. Meanwhile, every day, the eyes of Monique stare at Conry from the poster in his office. Someone somewhere is missing Monique. I know her name might not be Monique, but she has a family somewhere. It'd be great if we could tell them what happened to her. The B-side of that is, once we know who she is, it'll be that much easier to find who killed her. Meet the detectives assigned to the case of the Gravesend Jane Doe, otherwise known as Monique. I'm Detective Mitchell Eisenberg. I work out of the 60th Precinct in Coney Island, Brooklyn, New York. Uh, this July, I'll have 23 years with the NYPD. My name's Tim O'Brien. I work in the uh, Homicide Squad in Brooklyn South, and I guess somewhere around 35 years on the job. Even though they joined the NYPD in different decades for different reasons, their careers followed a similar path. Here's Eisenberg. Well, after graduating college, I worked as an accountant for three and a half years and was not happy sitting behind a desk. So I decided to take the police officer test. Everyone says it's the best show on earth, you know, ticket to the best show. So uh, I joined and it's been an interesting ride ever since. And this is O'Brien. 1983, I was a fat Irish kid on Flatbush. I mean, you don't have too many choices. That was all of you, I'm sorry. <laughs> Why did I become a cop? Uh, part of it, you want to help people and do the right thing. I mean, that's the way we were brought up. And it's also a good job. It's been, uh, it's been a good career for me. You find anything, Tim? It's January 4th, 2019. Four years to the day since three bird watchers discovered the victim's hand. We're at the scene of the crime. 
we're standing in the tiny cove at the back of Calvert Vox Park. You probably don't wear your best shoes when you come out here. Oh no, this is my best shoes. Really? My best and my worst shoes are one and the same. These guys are old school. They wear the traditional uniform of a plainclothes detective. Black overcoats, ties knotted high on their white shirts. This was not here last time. This was not here. Neither was that. Neither was that. Neither was a nice family of ducks out there. There's an upside down fishing boat on the shore. It wasn't here the last time they visited, so they check it out. What do you think, Mitch? Under the boat? Under the boat, we gotta look. Yeah. You wanna crawl in? Oh, maybe we can give a look. I think you brought your gloves. O'Brien kneels on the wet sand. He pulls a flashlight out of his pocket and points it into an opening in the hull. Seinfeld episode, Titleist, you ever see that episode? Oh, with the, the whale? Ball. Make sure no one's sleeping in there. Tim, you didn't wear the right clothing for that tonight. Nah. There's nothing in the boat. They move to another spot. What do you think, when it warms up, we'll get scuba back out? I think this is the warmest, warmest it's gonna get for a while. This is actually not bad. I think it's still here. Somewhere. You think the... It's floating. Floating? I don't think floating. Well, I think it's moving gone. around on the bottom at least. O'Brien thinks that with the help of the scuba unit, they'll find the victim's skull. Still got some pieces out there. Eisenberg doesn't share his view. Four years later, still we're nowhere. A little more than somewhere, but nowhere at the moment. Four years and we still don't know who she is, where she came from, what happened to her, why. Just a lot more questions every day. Based on the layout of the park and the location where the body parts were found, the detectives developed a theory. They think that the killer murdered and dismembered the victim at another location. He wrapped the body in a bag or blanket, then drove to the back of the park. Midway through, he reached a locked gate, an area restricted to cars. From there, he would have parked his car and walked. Whoever did this would have had to carry the person in. And, you know, a female, even a small female, would still be 100 pounds plus. It's it's a heavy carry and, and walk. In this scenario, the killer would have hauled the victim's body about 200 feet from the parking lot to the wooded area. There in the tall grass, surrounded by trees and brush, he left the body. Then he took the body parts that would make the victim identifiable, hands, feet, head, and walked another 20 feet to the rocky shore. He tossed them into the waters of Gravesend Bay. We do a lot of assuming in this, and a lot of people may ask, why didn't they throw the whole body in? What they wanted to hide, they threw in the water. Other items were found at the scene. Investigators checked them for DNA and fingerprints. Results came up negative. There were several motels within the area of the incident, and um, we had gone over there to see if you know, maybe this woman fit the description of somebody that was there, a guest, you know, maybe someone was a victim of a domestic incident inside the hotel. There was a blanket recovered at the scene. So we had taken a picture of the blanket to the local motels to see if this is a blanket that they used. Maybe it possibly came from their motel. That didn't pan out as well. In the months that followed, investigators returned to the crime scene. Anytime we can, we get the dogs to run out here. School with trains now, if they have a free day and they need to do exercises, 
This is one of the places on their list. What's different about this case than any other case I've worked on is most of the cases we work on, we have victims. We know who the victim is. And we pretty much know what happened to them. I don't know of any other case that I've had in the last 11 years in the detective bureau where I have so many questions that are unanswered that becomes a you know frustrating situation. With 23 years on the job, Detective Eisenberg could retire today. I don't want to retire and someone else has to deal with this later on. I'd like, you know, for myself personally, I'd like to have some closure on it. For Conry, Eisenberg, and O'Brien, one of their main motivations is a desire to bring the victim home. We want the family to know that this person didn't just, she didn't walk away from them. You know, something happened to her. We want to let the family know that we have a and that they can take care of her now. Dismemberment cases are unusual in New York City. The medical examiner's office gets an average of two to three per year. When these cases happen, there are usually two possible scenarios. Chief Conry explains. You could have a, an otherwise, I would say normal, with quotation marks around it, person, who killed someone and panics and decides they have to dispose of the body and ends up dismembering the body. And that's one end of the, the range. And the other end of the range is a homicidal serial murderer who um, maybe enjoys dismembering the body after it's part of the procedure. This leads to another question. Could there be any details from this case that point to a motive for the homicide? We went to an outside expert. I'm Dr. Katherine Lavery. I am a professor and graduate coordinator at Iona College in New Rochelle, New York. I'm also a criminologist and consultant on different areas in crime. Lavery specializes in, among other things, violent crime and sexual assault. We've given you some of the documents from the case. Yes. And we were wondering if you could tell us what your theories are on who this killer is and why he killed. Number one, I think the method of the way she was found, which is not necessarily indicative of how she was killed. It was how she was disposed, which is a dismemberment. That shows a lot of anger. It shows a lot of rage. In most cases of dismemberment, there has been some prior relationship with the victim. Lavery thinks that the victim's family might not even be aware that she's missing. When I look at the victim, there is a part of me that thinks that she has been separated from her family for a while, either due to a relationship, due to moving. Maybe she didn't have a good family relationship where she didn't keep up with that. Based on the out-of-the-way location where the body was disposed, Dr. Lavery doesn't think that Monique's murder is the work of a serial killer. I don't know what serial killer would put her here where she may not be found for years. Usually serial crime, they want to be discovered. Could this have been the work of a gang? In terms of gang killing, it's a little overdone. Gangs getting rid of possible informants or snitches will probably kill very quickly and not spend a lot of time on the victim. This person spent time on her. It takes a long time to dismember somebody. And that's where I think it gets back to the interpersonal relationship. 
Perhaps the biggest clue of all to the killer's identity is the location where the body was found. Either he grew up in the area or he was familiar with the area in some way. It's a very remote location. Calvert Vox Park sits on the South Brooklyn waterfront off Gravesend Bay. It's surrounded by some of New York's more iconic sites. To the north, the Verrazano Bridge spans the Narrows and serves as the gateway to New York Harbor. To the south, the parachute jump, a relic of the old Coney Island amusement park, dominates the skyline. The park is bound by Shore Parkway, one of the busiest highways in the city. But the rocky shoreline here looks more like New England than New York City. The park is a well-kept secret, even for locals. There was a film shoot the other day here. The woman who was the producer lives on Neptune Avenue, which is just across the bay. She says, I never knew this was here. I've lived here all my life. That's Tim Crowley. He's a member of Seaview Rotary Wings, a model helicopter and drone club located in the back of Calvert Vox Park. We're standing next to the flying field that the club rents from the parks department. Monique's body was found about 100 yards away. Calvert Vox Park is an oasis for bird watchers, dog walkers, and model plane enthusiasts. David Ewan, the president of Seaview, has been coming here on a regular basis for eight years. Well, I can tell you my first impression when I walked in here. It's exactly like what you see right now. It's quiet. You occasionally see the bird watcher who comes around with the cameras. David says he feels safe in this park, although the park attracts its fair share of partiers and transients. Obviously, there's drug use back here. Um, there's occasional prostitutions back here. And we also have wild parties back here, too. I mean, if you think back about three years ago, we had a... I hate to say, a rave party that, you know, they had to call an NYPD aviation to come and disperse the party. Past the ball fields and the model plane club, there's a path that runs along the shoreline. Follow this through some tall grasses and you'll come to the small cove where Monique's hand was discovered. You'll also find traces of the locals. Up until a decade ago, before this park was renovated, this spot was a dump. And it kind of still is, although not a legal one. This is an area where people would come and not only drop their trash and stuff, but they would abandon their boats. So it's really like the back area where people just go and say, okay, nobody's gonna come here. I'm just gonna dump it here, you know? And so unfortunately, maybe that's what happened with that person. Since the investigation began four years ago, Detectives Eisenberg and O'Brien have chased down a lot of leads. Probably the biggest angle that we have right now is a tattoo. In the beginning, there was the tattoo, a heart with a rose going through it, and a banner across the heart with a name inside written in script. It was discovered in March 2015. When the victim's remains were found, detectives noticed a purplish-green stain on the victim's right calf attack at the medical examiner's office reconstituted the skin with baby shampoo. They gave us a photograph of what's left of the uh, tattoo, and uh, we, we started canvassing tattoo shops to see if anybody recognized it. It wasn't going too well. Um, everybody seemed to agree that it was uh, an older style tattoo, and uh, possibly even a jailhouse tattoo, they were calling it. In the evidence photo, the reconstituted tattoo looks squashed and blurry. 
It's difficult to make out. We stopped at one tattoo shop and I was talking to the fellow who was doing it. And he, he was really interested. He was a little hesitant to maybe get involved because he had read the story in the paper and I think he realized what it was about. So, uh, and you, you, you can't blame him. You know, you read a story about a chopped up, you know, chopped up body and then, you know, who really wants to be involved in that. But th the next day he, he called me and he sent me, uh, he sent me a photograph. He redrew the tattoo of what he believes it was. The new drawing by the tattoo artist shows the tattoo as it would have looked in life. That became the detective's new calling card. They went to tattoo shops in Coney Island, Gravesend, Sheepshead Bay, wherever they went, they pretty much got the same answer. My name is Joe Kay. I'm a tattooer at Citizen Inc. Studios. I'm located in Brooklyn, New York. Technically, this is Sheepshead Bay, but some locals will argue that this is actually Gravesend, but it's Sheepshead Bay. Now, I'm going to show you a tattoo, and I'd like to get your reactions to it. I, I remember this tattoo. This is what the gentleman showed me that was on the, uh, the victim, right? This was the tattoo. Exactly. And, uh, Joe didn't get a visit from a detective back in 2015. He got a visit from a reporter. The reporter showed him the photos of the tattoo and asked him a few questions. The kind of work that this is isn't exactly high quality or like somebody that necessarily, let's say, knows what they're doing. It could be done as, as what in the industry what we call kitchen wizards, as people that tattoo at their house or at a party. A heart and rose with a banner is a very popular design. People would definitely put their own name into this tattoo, absolutely. In the early 90s, if this person, let's say, is in their 40s, in the early 90s to mid 90s, it was very popular for people, The I don't know what to get, so I'm gonna get my name tattooed on me. And that was, and then ultimately that became, towards the end of the 90s and the early 2000s, that became kind of embarrassing to have your name on you, and that's when they all started becoming tribals, you know? Have you ever covered up a tattoo like this before? I'm gonna put my kids through college on all the cover-ups that I did of these tattoos. Similar to the other Coney Island area tattoo artists that the detectives interviewed, Joe thinks that Monique's tattoo dates to the mid-90s. And, he says, it doesn't have any distinguishing characteristics that would link it to a local artist. If it was a local artist, I'd be able to tell. If it was like, let's say, any of the old-timers, like Tony Polito, Russell Soul, um, or any of those guys, we'd be able to tell. This brings us to the most identifiable aspect of the tattoo, the name Monique. Remember, investigators believe it's Monique. But other interpretations include Ronique and Konique. As the case got colder and colder, forensic anthropologist Bradley Adams dug deep into his forensic toolkit. We eventually tried uh, kind of new methods like stable isotope analysis, which can help determine geographic history. Here's where forensics gets really geeky. Scientists can learn about a person's movements in their lifetime by comparing elements found in body tissue to elements found in drinking water. Here's Bradley Adams. With the isotope, it's not going to give you like a specific location, right? It's going to give you kind of general locations, and it's because it's based on drinking water. So different parts of the country, the drinking water is going to leave different signatures in your bones or your teeth or your hair. As Adams explains, your teeth tell a story about where you might have lived as a child. Your hair is constantly growing. 
and can point to where you live months before your death. Your bones are somewhere in the middle. They have lifespans of about a decade. In this case, we only had bone, which is going to basically look at the kind of geographic uh, residence of somebody, you know, more or less, say, 10 years ago. The report that came back stated that Monique might have lived in upstate New York or further west, New Mexico, Nevada, maybe Oregon. The investigators zeroed in on New York State. We believe Monique spent some of her time in Oneida County, New York, which is upstate New York, north of New York City. When we put out our request for media attention, when we put out the photo, when we put out the tattoo, we targeted all of New York City and, all, and basically the whole United States, but we specifically targeted Oneida County. We've been to Oneida County. We've talked to local law enforcement there and made sure they're aware of this. So if they could help or come across any leads, uh, they would let us know. In the continuing search for more leads, Chief Conry turned to the NYPD's human trafficking team. Lieutenant Christopher Sharp is the commanding officer of the Vice Division's human trafficking team. Earlier this year, Sharp was launching a campaign to raise awareness about sex trafficking. He wanted to put up some posters in precincts. So he and his boss went to talk to Chief Conry. While we were sitting in Chief Conry's office explaining this to him, he points over to a poster that he has in the corner and he says, this is one of the biggest cases that remains unsolved and he needs some assistance with it. And so I explained to Chief Conry that if we took a picture of that picture, we might be able to go back and see if there were any prostitution ads related to that image. We can go back as far as 2013 to 2014. We put it through two different systems and unfortunately we weren't able to come out with a positive hit. Uh, we found similar images, but nothing that was a clean match. Lieutenant Sharp said that he also searched the database for the name Monique. About a thousand hits came up. And that was the end of that. So knowing what you know about the case, do you have any theories about who the killer is? I've given some thought. And because I live in the world of human trafficking, what I tend to think of is probably a little bit different than maybe the other divisions or bureaus in the department. I immediately thought that she could be a human trafficking victim, uh, sex trafficking, labor trafficking. And the reason why no one here locally recognizes her is because she was recruited and brought from somewhere else. And so the thing with sex trafficking or with labor trafficking, it's the same elements. It's force, fraud, or coercion. And you could be lured here and thought, oh, you're gonna be a manager of a restaurant and then be forced into prostitution. Or you could have your documentation taken when you get here and you could be out doing dates over the internet or you could be out working on a track in the street. Human trafficking is an underreported crime for obvious reasons. The New York State Interagency on Human Trafficking reported about 1,000 cases of sex and labor trafficking from 2007 to 2017. Lieutenant Sharp says that the real number of victims is impossible to tally. It's rare that you have someone walk into a precinct or call 911 and say, I'm a victim of human trafficking. What they're telling you is, is that, oh, I was beat up. Uh, my identification was taken. Oh, I was held against my will. I was kidnapped off the street. That's what they're telling you. And basically how we develop a sex trafficking case, which is 99% of our cases, is that we speak to them and we figure out there are other elements that are going on. At this point, what keeps the case alive is to keep the conversation going. Here's Chief Conry again. 
I was talking about it with one of the other police executives from the NYPD. The idea came up, what is it that every normal adult does just about that someone can't do if they're dead? She can't vote, she's dead. We thought about that and said, well, not everyone registers to vote. But you can't renew your driver's license if you're dead. The case detectives did a search on the New York State DMV database. Female, black, between the ages of 25 and 45, whose driver's license expired after the victim's likely time of death in mid-2014. We came up with a very good match early on. Uh, Her name was Monique. When we looked at a photo of the person, it matched our rendering almost too perfectly. This person had no criminal record had a connection to Queen South, which is right along the same highway where the Calvert Fox Park is. So it looked very promising. Then they hit a snag. In our data mining, we found an accident report that this particular Monique had an accident, had reported a vehicle accident eight months ago, which is obviously years after we found the body. That wasn't the end of the lead. Because she fit the description... Conry wondered if she might be the Monique that the tattoo referred to. Once again, detectives knocked on the door of a woman named Monique and held their breath. As it turns out, she's fine, she's alive, and uh, she's not the Monique on the tattoo. Tim, what do you think is going to change all this? We just keep coming back here. Maybe we'll get scuba. When it warms up a little bit to take another look, you know, you just got to start from scratch, talk to the lab. Maybe they can do some more testing on some of the stuff. We we are going to identify her. It's going to be with the public's help. Someone's going to read about it, remember something, think something. When all is said and done, where does that leave us? The murder is unsolved the victim unidentified. The detectives won't give up. They'll continue the hunt as long as it takes to find answers. In the meantime, you can help. If you have any information regarding this case, contact NYPD Crime Stoppers at 1-877-TIPS. That's 1-877-8477. Or visit crimestoppers.nypdonline.org. All tips are anonymous. You can find images from this case on our social media channels. Go to at NYPD on Instagram and Facebook or at NYPD News on Twitter. Thanks for listening to Break in the Case. I'm your host, Detective Carrie Riley. Until next time, be safe.